Well, a number of people have written books about Federer. I am one of them, and alongside me is Christopher Clary, the tennis correspondent of the New York Times. You're another one who's written a book about him. We keep talking about him, even though he's not around. I, I guess that just testifies to the magnetism of the man. Well, Chris, he's been around a long time now, right? So I think that's the thing, and, and he's been excellent for a long time. And I think he's fascinated people from the very beginning because of his multiple cultural background and everything else. So I'm sure that's one of the reasons why you wrote about him with your language skills and were connected to him early on. For me, I just felt like uh, everywhere I went in the world, people were really curious about him and very positive about him. And that was something that struck me that was very different than a lot of other athletes who have pockets of support. But Roger was really close to a universal. And so I was really, really interested by exploring that and taking a chance on trying to get something fresh out of all the times I'd interviewed him and been with him over the years. But I know a lot of us have taken a shot at it, for sure. One of the things I tried to explore in the latest edition of my biography of him was whether there is something saintly about him. And I shied away from that because I just thought, hang on, he's a human being. Let's not get too into concepts that are down to personal belief. And yet there is something old soul about him if I can put it that way which makes people gravitate towards him in a way that they don't necessarily gravitate towards others who have the same body of work yeah I think there I think there's some sort of sense of um it's an empty canvas people want to put what they want on it in some ways and I think Roger's very aware of that in some way I think he's become aware of that over time and I know a lot of great athletes that I come across get that sense that whatever they're going to do it's going to be interpreted through somebody else's prism because of how they see them already, what they've achieved. And I think, you know, Roger hasn't been somebody who, outside of his press conferences, has really done a whole lot of communication over the years. He's chosen his sponsors and communicated that way. But the fact of it is, I think he's somebody who, uh, who's very well aware of, of how he projects in the world now and how much importance he has. And I think it's something that he actually um, sometimes finds amusing from talking to him about how the slightest gesture can be interpreted in many different ways. Saintly, I don't think he'd want to have that, that label by any means. But the, the reaction people have to him is, as David Foster Wallace wrote long ago, something of a religious experience is true. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that he hasn't projected himself much outside his set-piece tennis interviews because he's got tremendous name recognition well outside tennis, well outside sport even. Are you suggesting that that might even be a missed opportunity? No, I think what I'm saying is I think he has been very visible but not so always so audible outside of his news conferences. He does that kind of in that sort of mode. He, doesn't, he hasn't done a whole lot of, you know, interviews and, and sort of long sort of documentaries. He never wrote his own book, for example, things like that. He sort of tried to keep himself, I think, within the context of the tennis world in terms of his communication when he's speaking about the sport. But then, of course, you see him everywhere. I know with his advertising and the sponsors and everything else. But I think people still can look at Roger, despite how familiar he might seem, and kind of have their own version of Roger. And I think they can go after him as a personality and take what they want from him and see him through that lens. I mean, I, I get people from all over the world looking at him in a positive way, but sometimes in different positive ways. Nadal has overtaken him, uh, gone to 22 Grand Slam titles, Djokovic at 21st. The three of them started the year on 20. Is there a danger that Federer could be being relegated to the third man in this great three-man dynasty or do you think that we're actually getting too fixated on numbers look i mean i think there's already a decent argument that he's number three now as we speak in terms of just the tennis results and uh, just things that matter the most the number of grand slam singles titles in this era is a huge thing with um that sort of being the benchmark that wrongly or rightly has been set by the general public and then the number one record 
which Novak now has very clearly, number of weeks of number one. The head-to-head record, even though you can argue that many different ways with the surfaces and the number of matches on clay and, and the timing of their ages when their peaks were, Roger does trail both of them. But look, I, I'd really believe, unless something crazy happens in the next couple of years where Novak, say, completes the Grand Slam or blows out the number to 27, 28, and does something extraordinarily amazing in his late 30s, I think we're going to see this era as a group of three. And I think Roger will always be part of that conversation. The rivalries that they, they had and they created over a long period of time, and that's part of the extraordinary thing, is that they really were able to do it again and again, repeatedly in these major venues. I think that, that in the collective consciousness, it's going to be a group thing. And Roger certainly is going to be part of that. You see, that's interesting. One of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing is trying to define your criteria. If you want to say who's the greatest, fine, we'll say what you're judging it by. And if you're judging it by Grand Slam titles won, then yeah, he's definitely behind Rafa and is behind Djokovic as well. But if there are other elements, if there is magnetism, if there is profile, if there is money perhaps, it's another numerical one. I mean, he's always ahead of Rafa and Roger in the Forbes sporting rich list. And then, then that's also there's also that thing about aesthetics. Everyone talks about Federer as the beautiful player. Nick Kyrgios on, in his Wimbledon run talks about uh, there'll never be a competitor like Rafa. There'll never be a winner like Djokovic. There'll never be somebody who can wield a racket as beautifully as Federer. Maybe actually... We are seeing it too narrowly by allowing the talk about Grand Slam titles to judge who is the greatest of all time. Well, I completely agree. I mean, that's why I said before, I think, in tennis terms, you can look at it that way. But if you look at the whole, the whole picture, then it becomes a much more, I'd say, intricate and interesting argument in a lot of ways. And it doesn't even need to be an argument. I, I do think that in a lot of ways, the fact that these three players pushed each other, and Roger obviously was the one who arrived first, not that early, really, in the process. Rafa emerged you know, earlier in his career as a superstar than Roger did on the timeline. So I don't think we need necessarily to, to split them all. It's interesting to see where one is stronger than the other and, and one is weaker than the other. But for sure, Roger, the feelings that he engenders in people around the world, the vibrations that he creates are extraordinary. And, you know, I'm not saying they're, to everybody, bigger than Nadal or Djokovic, but I would hazard a guess that there are more people around the world who get kind of that goosebump feeling watching Roger Federer play tennis than the other two guys. And... You could make an argument that he is the most iconic tennis well, it, player of this generation. I think there's a good, a good argument for that on the men's side, for sure. If you take the views of marketing executives, sales executives of both TV rights and tickets at tournaments, Federer sells. He is ahead of Djokovic and Nadal in terms of you know, who people will pay to see. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's no question that, that, um, that Roger has that transcendent quality. And I know that's... I don't know the numbers on Nadal these days, but I can sense in the last couple of seasons things have really moved in that direction a little bit for Rafa as well. You can just feel it in the stadiums. The fact that Roger's not been here as much as well, I'm sure that plays a role. But it's just the appreciation, I think, for the body of work, the overall attitude toward it, the respect for the game, the competitors, each other. So I can just sense a lot more communion with all kinds of publics with Rafa Nadal in the last couple of years than I did before. And it's much like Roger, but Roger, I think Roger had it all along. And the thing that's crazy about Roger is I don't think he ever had a dip in popularity. A lot of athletes go through periods when they're sort of outcast or they're liked less or they make a mistake and they drop down. But Roger's kind of had this steady period and of sporting saintlyhood, if you will, <laughs> to use your term. But that part is rather extraordinary, and it's also been a, a great exercise in public relations, to be honest. I mean, he sort of transcends nationality. 
you know that from your you know experience in Switzerland and everything else. He kind of gives you that nice neutral color, neutral palette. But I do feel like, at least in my country, people always say, so we need an American tennis star, don't we? And I, of course we do. I think a guy like Roger in particular for many years kind of filled that every man role because I don't think he was viewed purely as a Swiss tennis player. He was kind of a global player that people connect to because they connected to his values, connected to the way he played the game and his style of play, and just the personality that they thought they saw in him. Whether it was true or not, it's what they thought they saw in him. Let's talk a little bit about longevity. To what extent does that play a role? I mean, I remember when Connors got to the U.S. Open semifinals at 39 and people said, oh, this enhances the Connors legend. Not sure in retrospect whether it has. Federer had two match points to win Wimbledon in 2019, just a few weeks short of his 38th birthday. Yeah, I feel like he's already done this chapter in some ways, having written a few chapters about him now. <laughs> I feel like he'd already made that great comeback at an advanced age, found a way to succeed, win the three more Grand Slam singles titles. And I do think that match that you referred to, the 2019 Wimbledon final, that would have been potentially taking him to the stratosphere for good even in this era, if he'd won that match. Just because the age he would have been, the context. He's already proven that he loves the game. He's already proven that he has the skill set and the endurance to be able to last a long time in a Darwinian game. So I don't know how much that really changes the overall picture, to be honest. One of the other things that I've given a lot of thought to is what will Federer do when he stops playing? Do you have a sense of what do you think he's, he's leaning towards doing? Well, he always said he didn't want to think about retirement too much because once he did that, he was already half-retired. That was his line. Um, I believe him on that, but he certainly has given some strong hints, hasn't he, between the design work with On on the shoes and the investment he made there in an area that he knows well. I know he's very interested in sort of how to build businesses and entrepreneurship because of his connections he's made through the years, through the foundation he's had from a very early age, which he clearly cares about and could grow a whole lot more with his name recognition and his ability to um, project. Uh, that around the world and his language skills and and the conversations he's had with guys like Bill Gates over the years. I know somebody he's been a mentor for him. It's not a coincidence. I'm sure they've talked a lot about that. And I think, you know, his kids are really, from what I hear, his boys love the game. I can't imagine he won't play some sort of role with them if they end up getting interested in playing at a higher level. I'm sure he cares about that. And then you have Labor Cup, which has been good news and bad news for him and Tony Godzik, his agent, because it's created a lot of waves in the game. But I know they care about it a lot. Roger's a stubborn guy. What he does, he wants to succeed at. That's going to need his uh, his attention and personal investment and personal presence to be able to succeed. So that's already, with four kids that aren't, you know, already to university age by any means, that's a lot of uh, pulls on his time. So I don't know if we're going to see some amazing change of pace from Roger where he creates a whole new thing and radically changes his life and goes in a whole different direction. I think it'll be more emphasizing these areas that he's already been invested in to some degree. You see, the name recognition, and especially the work he's done in Africa through his foundation, is for me the basis on which he could make so much of his fame. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. There's an interest in designing running shoes and working with businesses, and I mean, which business wouldn't want him as their ambassador in some shape or form? But it's, it's as a, an ambassador in the developmental sense that I get the sense that he could achieve so much because people would listen to him. He has, he has sway just by being Roger Federer. Yeah, I, I think he's such a natural extrovert and gets you know, the energy from people and connections, and he's a curious person. I wouldn't say you know, by his own admission not an intellectual person, but he's somebody who picks up a lot from human contact and conversation, and that's how he learns and he enjoys that more than sitting in front of a, you know, a university lecturer or something like that. 
So I think he's going to be out in the world making those connections and, and being part of it. He's never been a very political animal. Uh, he's kind of out of tune with this time in some ways that way. It's one of the things I noticed as I was writing the book. I just think about this new era of athletes and how it's so important to project yourself on social media with your views and to be an influencer. And you hear Coco Goff and Igor Fiantek now chiming in more and more about these sociopolitical issues. That's not Roger. But you're right. Some, a nice apolitical quality to human development and early education that I think suits him pretty well. I don't see him going out there and advocating for major political causes or running for office, but I think you're right. That would be a great vector for him, and I know it matters a lot to his mother, who he's very close to. I know, I imagine it matters a lot to America because of her background as well and with the four kids. So I think that's a logical thing. But I think whatever it is, I don't see him retreating to the, uh, the Swiss residences and, and not being seen much. I think he'll be out there in the world. Looking back on his career... What stands out for you? Could be a tennis memory, could be just something private that uh, you picked up in one of the interviews. What, what has stood out for you or possibly even surprised you about him? I want you to answer this one too. I will. <laughs> I think that's only fair if you're getting all this out of me. Have you not given you notice? Do you want me to answer it first? <laughs> Go ahead. I don't, I don't mind thinking. Well, the thing about uh, one of my early interviews with him, he was 19 and... He was talking so confidently, and I played doubles with uh, Severin Luti, who was his friend and doubles partner. So we had that in common. We we connected on that, and we were talking about South Africa because he spent a lot of holidays in South Africa. And he said to me, um, "I said to him, so what do you think of the political situation in South Africa at the moment?" And he said, "Well, I don't know. I don't know much about the political situation. I mean, obviously, I I follow the broad developments, but no. I mean, I'm 19. Why should I have an opinion on that?" And and actually, it was a totally fair and logical answer. What struck me about it was he was willing to say that with total confidence at a time when I had assumed he would have an opinion because he gave that impression of being old beyond his years. He had the confidence, and yet he had that ability that I think is a sign of great knowledge. He had that ability to say, I don't know, with confidence. Mm. That stands out, and it's quite early in his career. I don't think he's somebody who's ever, I'm trying to think back in all our time, interviews and press, I've never, I've never heard him not tell the truth. He doesn't volunteer it all the time, by any means. He doesn't go out of his way to give you the information. But if you ask him a question, I, I think, in my experience, you get a straight answer. And that, considering how many interviews people like me have done with him over the years and how many news conferences he's done, that's, that's a pretty nice clean sheet. But I guess if I had to think about one sort of thing... It's how I start the book, to be honest with you, but I have to say it's sort of like you. It's a, it's a, it's a connection with him on a one-on-one level. And it was uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, when he was there for the exhibition tour, the first one he did down there. This was uh, 2012 and around Christmas time. And I happened to be there as well. I ended up in the car with him coming back from the Del Potro exhibition late at night, around midnight, and um, getting chased by fans on motorcycles and fans and cars and just sort of a, it was very much like a rock star sort of tour and I you know I was just struck then he was already in his early 30s I guess at that point just how enthusiastic genuinely enthusiastic he was about this experience this is a guy who spends most of his year on the road at this stage in hotels traveling to countries changing continents changing time zones and he could not have been more like a little kid in this car heading back to his hotel after this night playing Dopo. And he was looking out the window and sort of waving at these people as they came by the car and, and sort of pressed against the glass and just talking about the joy of travel and the joy of new experiences. And yeah, there weren't any points on the line here. It wasn't for a trophy. 
it was about him and I think him discovering kind of the reach that he had in a part of the world where he'd never really been at this stage before and he was kind of a I think really energizing for him and invigorating and I think that's when I realized whoa having covered Sampras who retired around the same age I go this guy is far far from finished because he's just got this this love of the process and I think that's what it is for Roger I think either through goodwill or strong will he managed over time to embrace so many elements of being a pro tennis player that others find enervating or frustrating and uh, or just plain old just a pain in the butt and Roger was somebody who really was able I think over time to by his own nature and and probably by that maturity that you saw early on understand what was going to be inevitable and let's do it right and that trip there though was I love what I do for a living I love what it brings me I love the energy I'm getting and I just remember the feeling in that car that night and we continued the interview later as well at the hotel and it was just uh, it was it was great to see somebody who wasn't jaded at all yeah it's certainly something I've picked up from him as well um, I suppose it chimes with a lot of my own personal upbringing I was encouraged to whenever whenever something happens that is not what you want look for the blessing in it and in a way anything Roger has to do that he doesn't particularly want he says okay how do I integrate this into my routine how do I get something out of it and I see that certainly the way he deals with press conferences because I don't think he would ever choose to do press conferences there are days when he quite enjoys them because he's a gregarious type but he says it's part of the process therefore that is part of my digesting of matches and I guess that's all part of the overall philosophy that we can all learn from it in whatever walk of life we operate. I remember Stan Vavrinko obviously knows Roger very well was asked what he'd learned from Roger and that was one of the things that he said he says that Roger's ability to embrace all these moments in the day of his working day or whatever it would be and be fully focused on them. He's a very undigital guy in that way you know he's, the, 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 he, he's got the cell phone. Undigital. Yeah he's somebody who's very in the moment very present I think and that's a uh, that's increasingly rare, and uh, I think that's a secret to his success with people. That's an interesting word to use. I suppose that's quite a, a good word to describe him as a person, undigital. I don't know. I just, I just comes to mind because I, I think about the fact that I've never seen him and in, I've interviewed him well, over 20 times, many different places. I can never recall him like, grabbing his phone and checking the time or trying to send a text message or, or during it. It seems like he's, he does it. He's going to do it right. He's going to focus on the thing at hand, whether it's a journalist or a sponsor or another player, whatever it's going to be. I don't know how much that you know, relates to his everyday life when the doors are closed. I, don't, I have no idea how distracted he gets trying to chase his four kids around or whatever. But I can tell you that it's, it's rare to see that in this era. Christopher Clary, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. It's been a great pleasure chatting. Chris, from fellow author to fellow author, I feel your, I feel your pain. It's been fun.